Uh, we are going to be picking up our study in the Gospel of John, so you'll want to grab your Bibles. Uh, we have been in this long study. You should know that, but uh, if you're visiting, we are studying through the book of John. We are in the middle of John chapter 18 and picking up from where we left off last week, and this text is going to press in on us in a particular doctrine, if you will, the doctrine that we sometimes call the perseverance of the saints. Uh, the question of will you finish well? Will you continue to walk with the Lord through the end of your journey and so that when you pass into eternity or if Jesus returns, that you can stand before him and you hear that well done, good and faithful servant. So this text leads us in that direction. How do we know that we are going to finish our race well? So uh, with the last weekend, they're in the garden. Uh, the guards come to arrest Jesus and they send him to the home of Annas, father-in-law to the high priest Caiaphas. That's where we left off last weekend. And now we pick up that story, John 18, beginning at verse 15, and then we'll read down through verse 27. And it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And since that disciple, who we will come to understand is John, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anison sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and in once a rooster crowed. All right, simple reading of a text. It's a text that is likely familiar to many of you. And there are two stories taking place simultaneously at the same time. You've got Jesus sent to the high priest's home, and his trial has begun, and then we see the testing of Peter. So scene one, Jesus being questioned in the high priest's palace. Scene number two, Peter is being questioned at the fireside in the courtyard. And there's a lot going on that is worth digging into in this text, but if you were to boil it down to one central theme, it is this theme of Peter's faithlessness and Jesus' faithfulness. Peter's faithlessness and Jesus' faithfulness. Peter fails in this text, and Jesus doesn't fail. That's where we're going. And what's most critical in this context is that Jesus is faithful even when we are not. If you remember nothing else from this text, I hope you take that thought with you. Jesus is faithful even when we are not. 
Okay, so we can speculate. We could think about it and we could go, if I could get in a time travel and go back and I were standing in Peter's shoes, what would I do in that moment? How would I respond? How would I answer? But it's all speculation, of course. And I think the most critical question for us to ask is, how do we answer that question today? Will I persevere in my walk of faith today? Will I deny my Lord? What will keep me, what will keep you? from walking away from your faith? And that conversation and that question is a very relevant question on two levels. First is because of the moment in time that we find ourselves living in, and we talk about this a lot. We've talked about it often. We've spent much time looking at the cultural moment that we are in the midst of a radical shift in our culture, both from a broader cultural perspective and certainly from a religious point of view. That we are living in the midst of what sociologists are telling us is the most rapid decline in church attendance and in faith adherence that has ever happened in North American history. The last 25 years has been a dramatic exodus from the church. And a U.S. and Canadian census data would tell us this, that the fastest growing religious demographic in North America is that that is called the no religious affiliation, or simply they label it the nuns, not N-U-N-S, the nuns with a habit on their head, but the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They claim to have no religious affiliation. So if you want to dig into this stuff, if you get into stats and data, just get on StatsCan website and they uh, type in religious affiliation, and there is a ton of information on there based on the 2021 census here in Canada. But one of those infographics on the screen will show you the farther west you get in Canada, the more secular our culture gets. So you will see there on the west coast, that beautiful place called British Columbia, that we now live with a majority population, 52% of residents in British Columbia now say they have no religious affiliation. They would declare themselves to be nuns. Now, secondly, dive deeper into that first level, that most of those nuns, when you start looking at their life, actually have a faith background. This is what's interesting. Now, for those under age, maybe 25 or 30, that may not be the case. There is a new generation being raised outside the church. Parents who do not tell their children about the Lord. No Sunday school, no day camp, no memories like that. And so for that younger generation, there are some who are truly nuns. They have never heard the gospel. Uh, illustration of this, a public school teacher talks to me just about a month ago and shares with me that in her over 20 years of teaching in the public system, she has made it a habit at Christmas to ask her elementary students, do you know what Christmas is about? So this year, in her elementary classroom, she asked the question of 18 students. Does anyone in the room know what Christmas is about? And only one student of the 18 knew that Christmas had something to do with Jesus. When she asked the question, how do you know this? Well, grandma and grandpa told me about it. So that generation may have never heard, but anybody over age 30 and upwards, the vast majority of those who claim to be nuns actually have some bit of a Christian memory. Either Sunday school or a day camp, their parents or their grandparents went to church. They probably said prayers at mealtime or at bedtime. They maybe showed up at Christmas or Easter, but now they no longer claim to believe. They are not just nuns, but they are duns. Been there, done that, tried it, want nothing to do with it. Walked away. And why does this matter? And why should we care? 
Well, because of the many warnings that we have in Scripture, and so I'll put one of Jesus' most shocking words on the screen when he says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Sober words. Hebrews 3 gives us a similar warning. Take care, brothers. Take care, sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And look at this phrase, leading you to fall away. To fall away from your Lord. From the living God. We have come to share in Christ if. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, you know this as well as I do, that there are many, many famous stories of people who have walked away from their faith. Uh, A generation ago, uh, one of Billy Graham's best friends back in the early years was a guy named Charles Templeton. And we are told that Templeton actually was a better evangelist than Billy Graham was, that he was a more fluent speaker, he was more thought on his feet really quickly, and he had uh, large crowds following until he had a crisis of faith. And before he died in his senior years, he wrote his spiritual autobiography, basically a deconstruction story called Farewell to God. And in our generation, there are many, many famous people who are walking away from their faith. We'll put four pictures on the screen. Uh, These are faces that you probably know their names. Joshua Harris, who was the senior pastor of Sovereign Grace Church, who wrote a best-selling book, uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, who is famous for his podcasts and his preaching, who has walked away from the faith. Abraham Piper, John Piper's son. Gungor, the musical team. And Rhett and Link, the comedy team. And they would call themselves by various names, ex-vangelicals, Deconstructionists. In fact, if you look at their, your Instagram feed and, and go to uh, hashtag deconstruction, you will find over 400,000 posts as of last month. This is a massive number of people. And as a pastor, I can tell you this, that as church leaders, as pastors, as elders, as care group leaders, as leaders in the church, that one of the greatest burdens that we share is that our people would persevere, that they would hold fast to the end. John will write three other short letters at the end of the New Testament. In 3 John verse 4, he says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And so I'll share it with you. You know, as a church leader, we get to witness the, the greatest and the best celebrations in people's spiritual journeys. We get an inside front row seat to seeing people coming to faith in Christ praying prayers of salvation, turning their lives over to the Lord. We get to be there when they go through the waters of baptism and we hear their personal testimonies of how Jesus has changed their life. We get to stand at the altar as a young man and a young woman pledge themselves to one another in Christian marriage. We later years, if God blesses with children, stand with them as they dedicate those kids to the Lord. We get to walk with families in good times and in bad times. We get as elders to pray with people and anoint them with oil, prayers of healing as they come to pray with the elders. We eventually stand at the graveside with families who have a dear old saint who walks faithfully with the Lord and we are celebrating a life well-lived saying we know where this individual is. They were rock solid in their faith. What a joy it is. But we also get a front row seat when those stories are reversed. When people walk away, when people say, I no longer believe what I used to believe. My theology has changed. I have questions about the Bible. I have questions about God. I have questions about the church. 
When people choose a moral pathway that takes them away from God's people, when people walk away from the vows that they have made to the church or to their family, when people choose a pathway that you can see is ultimately destructive to their lives and yet they are determined to walk that pathway, we also have a front row seat to those kind of conversations. And why this text matters is that more and more people are saying, I no longer believe. And so as your pastor, I have to ask you the question, how about us? How about you? How about me? Will we persevere to the end? And so as we look at the text, we're going to see two things. The the trial of Jesus, scene number one, and the testing of Peter, scene number two. That's the story that's in the text. And then as we come out of the text, I want to talk about two realities that are there behind the text. There is a sober warning, but there is also a sweet mercy. They are both here in this context, a sober warning and a a sweet mercy. So let's just jump in. Scene number one is the trial of Jesus. So it started in last week's text as they arrest him in the garden. They take him to Annas' house, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And what Jesus is entering into is part one of six of an interrogation process. And we'll be studying this in the coming weeks. There are literally six parts to his trial. He stands before Annas, then he stands before Caiaphas, then he stands before the entire ruling council, uh, probably the Sanhedrin, the scribes, and the, the ruling class. Then he is sent to Pilate, he is sent to Herod, and then back to Pilate again. Six interrogations that happen in a very short manner in the next few hours. The Gospels lay these four counts side by side. And so you might ask the question, why was he taken to Annas, who was no longer the high priest? Caiaphas is now the high priest. Why the father-in-law? Well, there's two things, I think. I think first in this is that Annas was sort of like the godfather. He was like the patriarch of the high priestly family. He was not the high priest anymore. He had been removed by Valerius Gratus, the, the governor who preceded Pontius Pilate. But he was given a significant leadership role. His son-in-law is now the high priest. And eventually, five of his sons will follow in the family business. And over the next 30 years, Annas has amazing influence. But secondly, I think Annas had a bone to pick with Jesus over this issue. When Annas was removed from his office as high priest, he was given the office of the authority of leadership and administration in the temple. Anna stayed in Jerusalem and he oversaw everything that took place in the temple. All the business, all the administrative, all the functions, all the sort of administrative behind the scene work ran through his office. So anything that happened inside the temple walls happened under Annas's eye. Now connect the dots in your mind that just a few days earlier, Jesus had come into Jerusalem and he had cleansed the temple. He had chased out the traitors in the court of the Gentiles. Those traitors in the court of the Gentiles would not have been there unless they had been there with the permission of Annas, the former high priest. He kicks them out, and Annas bears a grudge. Now, at verse 19 down to 24, Annas asks two questions. He asks about Jesus' disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus does a classic Jesus thing. He asks him questions back in return. Why are you asking me a question that you already have the answer to? You already know what I've taught. Everything I taught was in public. There was nothing private. It was in the temple and in the synagogues. You know. And then secondly, Jesus says, in fact, why are you even asking me a question at all? And what Jesus is poking at here is poking at the process. 
He is poking at Jewish law that would say in Jewish court, the prosecution could not demand that a defendant speak. The trial of that person would be convicted only on the basis of the witness testimony. In fact, according to Jewish law, the defendant could not defend themselves and nor could they be made to incriminate themselves. So what Jesus is saying to Annas is, why are you asking me questions when you know that in a Jewish court of law, I can't speak? Why are you putting this question to me? Go talk to the people who have listened to me. Call your witnesses. And Annas instead wraps it up and sends them off to Caiaphas. Okay, scene number one, Jesus is on trial. Scene number two, the testing of Peter. Now, this was predicted in two different ways. Conversation in the upper room comes to a close. They make their way out to the, uh, the Mount of Olives. And along that journey, both Matthew 26 and Mark 14, identical accounts, tell us that in that journey out to the mount, somewhere along there, Jesus says, hey boys, you know what's gonna happen? Before this night is over, all of you are gonna fall away. It's gonna be a fulfillment of Zachariah's prophecy that says they're gonna take out the shepherd and the sheep are all gonna be scattered. And in that moment, Jesus jumps in and says to Jesus, no, 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 that is not going to happen. And even if all of these other guys fail you, Jesus, I won't fail you. Now, just pause there and put yourself in that moment, just for a moment. The 11 who have just spent three years traveling with Jesus, who you assume are buddies and they are friends, and now Peter is throwing the rest of them under the bus and basically saying, if, even if all these other guys fail you, Jesus, I will never fail you. I love you more than these guys love you. I am with you to the end. And Jesus says, you know what? You're all going to deny me before the coming of the morning dawn. Luke 22 gives us a little bit more detail. Another conversation that has happened earlier in the evening. There's an argument at the table. Who's greatest? Jesus gets up and he washes their feet. And then somewhere in the conversation that follows, he turns to Simon and he says this, Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Okay, sifting which was done by hand in those days, what today we would call winnowing or threshing. And in our day, if you have spent any time on the family farm out on the prairies, if you have followed the combine harvesters, if you have seen it on television or you've seen it in person, you will know that in a minute, matter of just moments, the harvester goes through the field, cuts, beats, and cleans that wheat, and all of the chaff blows out the back of the harvester, and the clean wheat drops because it's heavier down into the storage bin in the bottom of the harvester in just a matter of a few moments. But it was a labor-intensive process of cutting the wheat and beating it and loosening the chaff and then tossing it in the air so that the chaff would blow away and the, the heavier wheat would land. And what Jesus is saying is, Peter, Satan wants to cut you down. He wants to beat you. He wants to throw you in the air. And he wants to see what you're made of. And our text tells us how it happens. All the disciples flee. Peter and John obviously turn around and begin to follow from a distance. John is somehow known to the high priest and he gets into the courtyard, but Peter's outside. So sometime later, John goes down to the gate, talks to the girl at the gate and said, hey, can you let my buddy in? Now, here's an interesting comment. I think that the first question is likely a, an innocent question. 
It's the girl at the gate. John is already inside. They know that John is with Jesus. John is known to the high priest. Interesting rabbit trail. We could go on there. But he goes down. He says, hey, can you let my buddy in? So by implication, if you're with Jesus and this is your buddy, your buddy must be Jesus as well. I think the girl was just saying, oh, so you're one of Jesus' followers too. I don't think it was an accusation as much as it was, huh, you're with him too. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. Peter goes and he stands at the fire. Now, put yourself in the moment. It's dark. You've been around a fire before. You know it's not bright light. It's flickering. Faces are coming and going. And in the midst of that, they recognize this guy doesn't fit in. He's not a soldier. He's not one of the temple guards. He's not dressed as a household servant. He looks like a fisherman. Maybe he smells like fish. I don't know. He stands out for some reason. And they're like, hey, who are you? Are you one of his followers? No, I'm not. And then finally, later on again in that flickering firelight, a relative of Malchus, whose ear was cut off, is looking back in his mind to the garden with the torches and the lights and that face in the garden, you know, swinging a sword. And he's like, aren't you that guy? Aren't you the guy that we saw in the garden swinging a sword, the one who cut off my cousin's ear? Isn't that you? And Peter loses his cool. He curses. I don't know the man and cue the rooster. Okay, now for most of you in this room, you know how the story ends. It's a pretty well-known story. We know the story of Peter's life, that Peter was one of the first men called to follow Jesus. His brother Andrew comes and finds him, says, we found the Messiah. Peter is part of Jesus' inner circle. Even among the 12, there were three that were his closest buddies, Peter, James, and John. And in reading the Gospels, you will often find the three of them alone with Jesus. Peter was a bull in the china shop. Peter was loud. Peter was boisterous. Peter spoke before he thought, think Freddie and you have Peter. <laughs> Peter who gets out of the boat to walk on the water. Peter will also go on to be one of the most important prominent leaders in the early church. It was Peter, the fiery preaching of Peter on Pentecost Sunday that 3,000 people respond to, go through the waters of baptism, and are added to the church. It is Peter who just a few weeks later will take the gospel to the Romans. He will go to Cornelius' house, a Roman centurion, the Romans who have just crucified his Savior, and now Peter is going into enemy territory, into a Roman centurion's house, taking the gospel to the Romans. Peter would go on to write two epistles at the end of the New Testament to the elect exiles, encouraging them, encouraging us to stand strong even though we face fiery trials. So you look at that, you know this about Peter's life, and you're like, okay, what was happening with Peter then in this moment? In this moment of weakness, it doesn't seem to fit with this man that we would think would stand tall. Peter fails. And secondly, how do we get around that truth? It seems to be so very clear that Jesus had said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. How is it that Peter falls through the cracks of what Jesus said? And here's where I think we need to do some thoughtful and careful work. Because there is indeed in scripture a sober warning for those who deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a sin that the scriptures identify as the unpardonable sin. It's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And you say, how do you define that? 
And as you dig into the text around that topic, it is an unwillingness to respond, a settledness in a heart to the clear work and teaching of God the Spirit, a denial that leads to eternal death, a denial that Jesus is indeed the Christ, a settled position of being anti-God and anti-Christ. Now, we could look at a dozen scriptures on this subject, but for lack of time, we're going to look at just one. One of the sober warnings, so 1 John 2, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all, that they all are not of us. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And what John is getting there is the Antichrist spirit, or the atheistic spirit, you might say, that has been around from the beginning of time. The spirit that says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe he exists. I will not bow my knee to some made-up deity that you have somehow made up. Karl Marx was right that religion is the opium of the people. It's just made up for weak-minded, unscientific, unthinking people. Fairy tales for weak-minded. And, and if you rewrite the apostolic creeds, you might have the atheistic creed that would say, I do not believe in God the Father. I do not believe in God the Son. I don't believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He might have lived. There may have been a historical Jesus, perhaps. He might have suffered under Pontius Pilate as a political traitor. But he wasn't a miracle worker because there are no such thing as miracles. And he certainly did not rise from the dead. I honestly have no use for the church. I object to what they teach on rational grounds because I'm a man of science. I object to the church on emotional grounds because I have found Christians to be hurtful and judgmental. I object to the church on moral grounds because the morals of the Bible are repressive and offensive. The bottom line is this. I don't find your faith to be true. I don't find it to be good. I don't find it to be safe. I do not believe in your God. And Romans 1 puts it pretty succinctly that the knowledge of God is actually a universal thing. That it has, come to be, it has come to be known to us through the universe, through creation, and it has come to be known to us through the human heart, through the conscience, through the moral code that is written in each and every human heart. But human nature has pushed back against the knowledge of God. And Romans 1 puts it this way, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That text is a damning commentary. Where all this evidence for God that is needed is written in the code of the universe, in creation itself, intelligent design is all over the map. It is stamped in the DNA of the human soul, the moral code of right and wrong that is deep within each one of us, a sense of justice, of good, bad, good, and evil. And we choose instead to shake our fist at God, 
to walk away and to say, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe, get away, get away, get away, and eventually God says, have it your way. And in the text, it says three times, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. So there is indeed a denial that leads to death. But we don't end there, praise God. I want to suggest that what Peter did in this text is not that kind of denial. Now remember that Peter had already made two great confessions. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? You're Elijah, you're a prophet. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Peter, you've got it right. And on that rock, on that statement, on that confession that you have just made, Jesus Christ is the living God. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. On this rock of revelation, I am going to build my church. Jesus is the Christ. You've got it right, Peter. In John 6, Jesus is doing some very difficult teaching, and people are running away from him. And he turns to the disciples, and he says, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, where would we go? We, are, we will never leave you. You have the words of life, Jesus. And then he goes on to say, we have come to understand, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So let me press this point just a little bit further and carefully. Because I think there's an important distinction in the question that Peter is asked at the fireside. Because the question Peter was asked was this, who are you not? Who is he? Now, I don't want to make more of it than what is in the text, but I certainly don't want to make less of what is in the text. It is a clear distinction. He was asked, who are you, Peter? Not who is Jesus. The question was not, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Instead, the question was on Peter. Who do you say you are, fisherman? And so what we see in Peter's failure is this twofold weakness of the moment, a moment of crisis when we witness Peter caving in to the fear of man, the fear of the moment. Peter's alone. All of his buddies have fled. He is standing in that fireside with soldiers. He knows very well that it would be natural for Pilate to not just kill Jesus, the ruler, but to take all of the guys who followed him. And he is standing there alone. And all of his bravado, all of his bluster, all of his big man on campus attitude is broken. And there is a sweet mercy here. Jesus knows what is going on with Peter. He knows that Peter's self-sufficiency has to be killed. He knows that Peter has to face the shameful weakness in his heart so that he can become through Christ and Christ alone strong. And so we see not predominantly Peter's weakness in this text, but what we see predominantly undergirding it is Jesus' mercy. Peter is unfaithful. He is, but Jesus is not unfaithful. Peter denies Jesus, but Jesus doesn't deny Peter. Are you following with me? And so we know when he denies that third time, and Luke 22 tells us this, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Out the door, out the window of that interrogation room, he's out in the courtyard and their eyes catch. And you're like, how would we know that? Only Jesus and only Peter knew that that exchange had happened. If Luke writes it down, it must be because Peter shared that story with him. 
And in that honor-shame culture of the first century, there is no way that a man would dishonor himself unless he was giving honor to a greater one. If he was saying, in that moment, when I was at my worst, Jesus did not forsake me. You see, Peter needed to die. Before this happened, if Peter were asked the question, who are you? And he basically did answer it. I'm the one who will be true to you to the very end, Jesus. Even if all these other guys fail you and walk away, I love you more than they all do, and I will not fail you. And Peter needed to know that he was just as weak and broken and frail as the others who had run away. Peter needed to know that only Christ would give him the strength to stand. Now, you know how the story ends. He is restored. We'll get to that text. He meets up with Jesus again around another charcoal fire, interestingly enough. And Jesus asks him a very poignant question when he asks him specifically, Peter, do you really love me more than these? And I think that question is a flashback to the garden when Peter said, even if all of these run away, Lord, I love you more. I'll never fail you. Peter, do you really love me? more than the other guys around you? Your love is greater and stronger and more faithful than all of these others. Really, do you love me more than these? And Peter in that moment responds simply with saying, no, Lord, I just love you, period. The bravado is gone. The bluster is gone. The posturing and the positioning is gone. Because Peter has seen himself for who he really is. A weak, sin-sick, fearful of man person. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. But he is strong. You see, when we lift up out of the weeds of this story to the greater story of the Bible, the sober warning is there. Philippians 2 tells us that there is coming a day when every knee that has ever lived in every generation, in every continent, every language, every knee is going to bow before him. Some will bow before him as their Savior and Lord, and others will bow before him as their judge. But make no mistake, every knee will bow. But do you see the sweet mercy in this text? Because what Jesus is saying to Peter in advance, you know what? Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to run you over with the combine harvester. He wants you to go through the gears. He wants to pound all that chaff off. He wants to see if you're the real thing. But I've prayed for you, and when you come through this, Notice the promise. When you come through this, you're going to be more useful. And each one of us in our own context and in our own ways are going to be called upon to give testimony as to who Jesus is. And so let me just ask you three questions and then we're done. And the first and the most important is this. Have you come to understand and to embrace who Jesus claimed to be? Do you know that Jehovah God decided to take on human flesh and to walk among us? That he came on a mission to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves? That he lived a sinless life that we could not live and that he willingly laid that life down to satisfy the justice of God that an innocent one would be punished on the behalf of the guilty ones? 
And are you willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ? That he is the savior that you need? But secondly, and it connected to that first, is the response to that declaration, that confession from your lips. Are you also willing to follow him? Because Jesus said, no one can be my disciple unless he deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. And that profession of faith that rolls off our lips, Jesus is the Christ, has to be followed up with a life of surrender that is being transformed. Is there evidence in your life, the fruit of the spirit that God has done and is doing a good sanctifying work? Are you willing to confess Jesus, not just as savior, but Jesus as Lord, Lord of your life? And finally, do you see the sweet mercy in the story? Because we need it. That even in our failures, Jesus remains faithful to his work in our lives. We might have a moment of weakness, but he doesn't give up on us. And there are so many promises along these lines. Let me give you just one. 2 Timothy 2, Paul is writing, this is a trustworthy saying, If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. And then this statement, this sober warning, if we deny him, he will deny us. But then look at this next promise. And if we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He stays faithful even when we're faithless. In other words, if the Lord has set his affections on you, he is going to finish the work. He has you in his eyes. He has you in his love. He has called you. He has set his love on you. And he is going to carry it out even if we are faithless. He's faithful because he will not deny his work in our life. Amen? And so we're celebrating at all of our sites this week, and we're celebrating communion. And as we come to this table, it is a better reminder. What better reminder for us? That in our failures and in our weaknesses, our sins are plunged into the grace of God. That it is, in fact, precisely because of our weaknesses, our failure, and our sin that his body was broken and his blood was shed. And thank God that Peter is not the hero in this story. Because there's a little bit of Peter in every one of us. But there's one who's able to keep us. And so maybe today you need this assurance. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know that every time we gather, maybe you find yourself where Peter found himself up against a fire. Maybe you've given in to the fear of men. And as you see Peter's story, that there's no failure so great that God's grace cannot take us back. And it is Jesus' faithful obedience that saves us, not mine or not yours. That when we've been tested, when Satan has sifted us, and when you return, Jesus said, you'll be useful again. You see, Jesus is more concerned with our perseverance than we are. So we got to close the message. But if you have failed, my friend, the invitation is open. Return to the Lord. Maybe this weekend it's time. Maybe you've actually been walking away for a long time. Maybe you came this weekend even thinking, I'm not sure that I believe this anymore. Maybe it's time to wander off. I would beg of you, I would plead with you, turn back, turn back. Because what Jesus is saying is, I am able to keep you. I am able to make you strong. I am able to give you everything that you will need to be strong in the strength of the Lord. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. 
he is strong. Let me pray for you. So Lord, as we come to the communion table, as we celebrate what you did for us and as we remember in these symbols, the covenant of your love toward us, may you remind us, Lord, that thank God our salvation is not on us, that our salvation is on the finished work of Jesus, that you have done everything that needs to be done and that, Father, you can handle our failures, that you see us in our moment of weakness and as you looked Peter in the eye, you look us in the eye and you know that when Satan has sifted us and we turn again, we are useful, we are strong in you. And so, Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters who maybe even this weekend need to turn back to you who have wandered or drifted away, Lord, may they turn, may they experience the sweet mercy of Jesus. May we celebrate that restorative grace that you pour out on us. And we give you our lives for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.